the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill, and welcome to this week's program. Man, I'm excited about this conversation, and I think you'll soon see why. Dick Schultz is joining us today, and you might be thinking, I'm not sure I know who that is, but I guarantee that you know the organizations that he's led and some of the many individuals that he's personally shepherded through the years. As I say most weeks, the inspiration for this show are Paul's words to the Church of Philippi. Finally, brothers, Paul wrote, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Well, that's what we try and do here each week. We try and think about these wonderful attributes and characteristics by talking with people who have lived them and who have walked the talk. Well, Dick Schultz is 94 years old, just recently had a birthday, has coached college baseball and basketball, has run the NCAA, and has run the United States Olympic Committee. And if that's not enough, he's mentored leaders and CEOs in Fortune 100 companies all around the world. But probably most importantly, and maybe because of it, Dick is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And he's with us here today in studio for the hour. And uh, Dick, it is an honor to have you join us. Well, it's an honor to be here and be a part of your show. Well, thank you. You know, Dick, I was thinking, looking back across the, the spectrum of your career, you've done so many different things. I mean, you've, you do you think of yourself as a coach, an athletic director, an executive, a mentor, a teacher? I mean, what? how do you think of yourself these days? Well, I think of myself now more as a mentor and a consultant but, you know, life is kind of a step-by-step process, and so uh, that's that's what I've experienced. You know, I, I grew up in a, a very small town, Kellogg, Iowa, 750 people there, and uh, there were 16 of my high school graduating class, and I was the only one who went to college. So that was wow. kind of the start. Yeah. Well, so I would say your life probably has not turned out the way you maybe thought it was going to turn out back in Kellogg, Iowa. Absolutely not. Uh, My senior year in high school, our superintendent came to me and said, you know, we'd like to start a junior high basketball team, but we can't afford a coach. Could you come in at 7 in the morning and work with the junior high kids? I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And I just loved it. And from that minute on, all I wanted to do was to be a basketball coach. And uh I was for the first 25 years of my career, and uh, but that's how it all started, just being a basketball coach. Wow, just just a basketball coach. But I, one of the themes that I see in your life when I look back across it is you have said yes to invitations, to opportunities, 
things that maybe just come out of the blue. Uh, I'm curious. A lot of people try and plan out their life, try and, you know, have a, a major plan. That doesn't always work out that way. God sometimes surprises us. And you have seemed to embrace the spontaneity, um, God, certainly God's sovereignty, and and certainly the opportunities he's put in front of you. I, I don't want this to sound egotistical. It, it's just one of the facts. The only job I ever applied for in my life was my first high school coaching job. And everything else just came along unexpectedly. I was asked to be the freshman basketball coach at the University of Iowa. And when I got there, Forrest Evashevsky, the athletic director, asked me, he said, you know, uh, when you're all through recruiting in basketball, would you be willing to help Otz Vogel with the baseball team a little bit? Because he knew my baseball background. I said, sure. Well, a year later, Otz had a stroke, and I ended up being the bas- baseball coach and and the assistant head basketball coach. And two years later, I was given the head coaching job. And those were nothing, that was nothing I expected. They just came along. Yeah. And so you, you go with the flow and you realize the Lord's got a plan for your life. And so you just move on. Go with the flow. I and mean, were you always like that as a kid? Tell me about your, I mean, you grew up in Iowa, rural, small town, good mom and dad. What was your home life like as a kid? Well, I was the only child and they'd been married about 10 years before I came along. And my dad had some uh, health problems early on, and they weren't sure they could ever have children. And then finally I came along. And as early, my early memories of what my dad did, he ran a pool hall. And when he sold that, I was brokenhearted. But he kidded me by saying he sold it because I was getting too good on the back table. <laughs> and uh, while we were a small town, we had two manufacturing plants there, a one-minute wash machine and a metal stamping company. And the metal stamping company, in combination with a man of refrigeration, which was just about 45 miles down the highway, uh, started the concept of frozen food lockers. And my dad was one of the very first pioneers uh, in that situation. But the, the stamping plant made the uh, the metal lockers that went into the freezing room, and a man provided the, the refrigeration. And I can remember riding around the car with my dad when he was convincing farmers they ought to rent a locker and they could have their meat processed and frozen. They wouldn't have to can their food anymore. So that was an interesting part of it, and I saw him willing to— to take a chance on uh, on futures. Yeah, and did you were, were you given some opportunity with the family business to kind of help out and to learn? And yeah, grow? I learned to cut meat, and uh, we had a uh, uh, the first few years we had a, an ice cream parlor and uh, a shop on the front, and I did a lot of work in that. And then the uh, locker business, when deep freezes came along, became huge, and and uh, we just had to use all that space, so we shut down the front of it, and I worked there. And we had a uh, an ice house across the street, and my dad gave me that as my project in the summer when I was in high school. And then later on, uh, when I was a senior, he said, you know, you need to go out and do something on your own rather than relying on me. So I got a job working on a construction company that our factories had because they were expanding and building a lot of buildings. So oh. 
he uh, gave me a good background, a good work ethic, but also encouraged me to move out and make some decisions on my own. Boy, that's a good that's a good dad, and yeah, obviously from a very good from a good home. Um, so, you know, starting in Iowa, you, you're you're working obviously as a young boy, but you love sports. I mean, is that an early love of yours? And would it honest to say, fair to say, the first love you you had? Oh, sure. It was uh, you know in a small town like Kellogg. Uh, our high school basketball and baseball teams were major interests, and then we always had what we what they called a town team, adults, and it was always usually pretty good. And uh, then when uh, a nice ballpark was built with lights, uh, Kellogg became a prominent player in uh, in a league that was started with about eight other cities. And uh, night, that's when night baseball was really prospering and growing, and every small town was putting up lights. And so that was a, a great experience, and uh, I played on that team along with a lot of older people, but it was a good experience. Yeah. I'm talking with Dick Schultz. He's the former head of the Olympic Committee, uh, former head of the NCAA. Uh, we're talking about his childhood growing up in Iowa, and it's kind of his first love, which was uh, baseball, basketball. And uh, Dick, you talked about um, you know playing on the semi-pro team of sorts, right? Uh, that team, if I remember your story, was eventually sp- spun into a professional major league. Uh, well, what franchise, it right? was, uh, what happened was that uh, when I started coaching in high school that first year, I signed a minor league contract with what then was the old St. Louis Browns, is now the Baltimore Orioles. And I signed a Class A contract, and I had uh, permission from our school to go out for spring training. And during that year, we had our first child. And uh, about 10 days before I was to leave for spring training, we got a telegram saying they were not going to allow any families at spring training this year. And that kind of shook us up a little bit. And at the same time, uh, part of God's plans, I guess, about two days later, I had an offer from Esterville, Iowa, a team in the Iowa State League, which was comparable to about double-A baseball, probably. And they offered me a job as player manager uh, with a lot more money than I was going to make in minor league baseball. So I played and managed in that league for three years, and then the league finally uh, fell apart. Players were, we had a lot of college players and a lot of ex-pro players, and Finally, that just kind of wore out, and uh, by that time, I was really busy at Iowa, and I didn't have a, the opportunity then to to do that type of thing. Yeah, so your decision to kind of devote full attention to coaching uh, at 1950 or so, is this, is this where we're at? Yeah. Okay, so you, you take on the opportunity to coach. You love it right away? I mean, was there a uh, – how intimidated were you to coach for the first time? Oh, I uh, I wasn't intimidated at all, probably because of the experience I had working with young people uh, in junior high. And then I was, uh, I was a 16-year-old college freshman, and I was a freshman along with all the guys coming back from World War II. So I got educated very quickly, and you either uh, – 
developed and survived an atmosphere or you felt like you were backed into a corner. So that, that was an experience that kind of seasoned me. And, and so when I started coaching in high school, it just it felt just like normal, like the thing to do. And I yeah. felt very comfortable. You, you've seen a lot of coach. You've been a coach. You've seen a lot of coaches. What What's the distinction between a good coach and a great coach? Well, it, sometimes it's pretty small, but uh, usually the difference is is patience and uh, the ability to understand the needs of each individual. This is especially true in coaching basketball, uh, where you're dealing with a limited number of people. The same thing happens in football, but it's there more of a coaching position by position, and the head coach just kind of is the the CEO of the operation. But in basketball, uh, you can't have five great scores. You've got to have somebody who's willing to be a rebounder and somebody willing to be a defensive stopper and somebody willing to be a playmaker. And then when you put that all together, it's not always your most talented players that make the best team. Hmm. It's the players that really work hard and develop their potential, not just to a certain point, but will work hard and kind of get over the pump and and get to a position that they never thought they could be. And sometimes the talented players think they're good enough right now and they just work hard enough to maintain their ability and then other players slide right by them. Yeah, there's a... I'm always intrigued by the variety of coaching that there are some who are boisterous and they stalk the sidelines and, and they're yelling and working John at the ref. And then there are others who seem a bit more placid. How would you have qualified your style? Well, probably a little bit in between. Uh, Basically the key for a coach is you have to coach according to your own personality. You can't see John Dover here uh, yelling and screaming all the time. If that's not natural for you, you try to do that and you'll be a failure. So you have to know who you are and coach within yourself and handle your emotions. I'm not going to say I never got up and never got a technical because I, I did have not many, but I had a few and you're going you're gonna to complain. And when I coached, you didn't have the coaching box you basically had to stay on the bench most of the time. Mm. And if you got up, it had to be for a pretty good reason or they were going to call it technical. I would like to coach now with a coaching box where you can move around and you can be more active with your players on the court at the same time. But the key is coach according to your personality. That's such a great uh, lesson for everybody. I mean, there's a lot of people listening today who are not coaches as, you know, athletic coaches, but they're, they're in a job and they're, uh, you know, trying to pursue a business, you need to stay within yourself, right? Be true That's right. to who God created you to be. Um, you obviously in, a, in the fraternity of coaching, there's a lot of great coaches. You've known a lot of them. Um, I know you were friends with Coach John Wooden, who was just a legend. I mean, we I, I work with a gentleman at Focus on the Family who played at UCLA on the JV team, so he he knew Coach Wooden and got to know him later. But curious what your friendship was with that legendary coach. John and I had a very close relationship, and uh, it started at a summer camp where we were both uh, for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it kind of moved on from there. And uh, if I was in Los Angeles, uh, we'd get together and have lunch together. And if 
he was someplace close, we would get together, and I got to know him and his wife, Nell, quite well. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a, kind of an interesting side story. When uh, when I was the NCAA, my very first year was the 50th anniversary of the NCAA and uh, of the basketball tournament, the Final Four. And John had already retired from coaching, and his ten, wife— Ten championships, right? I mean, yeah, ten championships— and his wife, Nell, had passed away. And after she died, John never came to a Final Four uh, because it was something they always did together. And he had it. He always knew where she was sitting at the basketball game. And they had this little signal that mm-hmm. he exchanged just before tip-off. And he just couldn't bring himself to come to the Final Four. So I was in my office one day, and, and two of the people who had responsibilities— for the uh, big Final Four event that we were going to have, said, we've got to have your help. We just can't get John to agree to come. And with all the championships he's won, if he's not there, this is going to be a big bust. So I said, well, I'll give him a call. So I called John, and I talked about it. And he said, Dick, he said, you know as well as anybody my relationship with Nell and why I haven't been there. I said, John, let me give you an offer to consider. Uh, The tournament is going to be an hour away from where the uh, event for the celebrating the Final Four is going to be in downtown Kansas City. I'll send a jet and pick you up, fly you in. We'll go right to the hotel. You can be at the dinner. We'll fly you back home the next day. You don't have to be close. He said, well, let me think about that a little bit and call me back later. So I waited a couple of days and called him back. And he said, if you can do it exactly the way you explained, I'll do that. So we did. And John sat with me at the table and, and the, the event was terrific. And when the event was over, John reached down and patted me on the leg. And he said, Dick, I want to thank you for your persistence. Mm-hmm. That was John's way of saying he was really glad he came. And then a few years later, Jerry Coangelo and I were involved in developing a big, large breakfast at the Final Four, and we got John involved in that, and he started coming in, at least for the semifinal games on a regular basis. Wow. That that demonstrates the trust he had in you and the good friendship you had developed with him over the years. Sure. Yeah. It was a good relationship. Boy, that's great. Um are you a were you a coach who preferred the games or the practice? Well, I I love practice because that's where all the teaching is. Uh, I like basketball because it's sudden death. Baseball is when you've got a pitcher throwing balls, it, it's kind of slow death, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but in basketball, you're going to win quickly or you're going to lose quickly, and uh, the important part. Uh, of any team is preparation. And so practice is very important, and that's where you do your teaching and you work with your individuals and put together your game strategy. And then the game takes care of itself. You can make some adjustments in your defense or your offense or certain types of substitutions occasionally that will help your team. But basically – you need to be ready to play yeah. and have a, a good plan prepared. We're talking with uh, Coach Dick Schultz, former Coach Dick Schultz, the University of Iowa, uh, former head of the NCAA and also head of the United States Olympic Committee. 
Uh, we're talking about a, a lot here, a lot of a lot of uh, wonderful life that you've lived. Ninety four years now. Um, you you touched on your family. You talked about your wife. Um, her name is Jackie. You've been married seventy four years. That's right. That might not be a record, but it's a pretty good average. You're getting you're getting close. So how did you meet her? And uh, tell we me met about at that. college. She was a cheerleader, and I was a football player, and I needled her that she would never answer the telephone or have a date with me until I ran a kickoff back for a touchdown, and that got her attention, <laughs> but that's probably not really the case. But, uh, yes, we got married between my junior and senior year. We were both 18, and we just kind of grew up together. Ah, that's great. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to write Paul Harvey's biography, and he used to talk about a golden rose going out to all couples who married 75 years, he would say, on their way to forever together. Yeah. That certainly applies to you. You guys have been an inseparable team. I mean, uh, has she? does um, Jackie travel? Did she travel with you a lot? Did she accompany you on a lot of your adventures? She did. Uh, when I was coaching in Iowa, of course, we still had kids in high school and then eventually in college, and so – she was restricted a little bit, but she had a good career of her own. She uh, was a, a teacher for several years. We both got teaching jobs at the same school. And uh, when we moved to Iowa City, she started a preschool uh, and it became very popular. In the 1960s, there weren't a lot of preschools around. And she had uh, two aides that worked with her, and she had morning and afternoon classes and Monday, Wednesday, and Friday classes, and Tuesday and Thursday classes. But her school became so popular that when a woman became pregnant, she would register her child so she could be sure to get her in. Wow. But then when I uh, left Iowa and moved to Cornell as athletic director, then I uh, all of our children were in college by that time. And uh, I said, now you're going to travel with me. And from that time on, she traveled with me all the time. And one of the blessings of the Olympics is that uh, a lot of the events that the International Committee had included spouses. So we basically have traveled the world together. And uh, when I was doing a lot of consulting work in, in Asia, I would take her with me a couple of times a year. And uh, so it, it's been a great experience, and we have a lot of wonderful memories. Yeah, people always ask a long-lasting married, married couple, you know, what's your secret? I don't think there's any secret, secret to a good marriage. But when you're asked that and, and looking back on the strength of your marriage and the happiness of your marriage, how, how do you answer that question? Well, there's no secrets, and it— this was a, a an issue that came up, you know, I, I did a lot of work in China. I worked with uh, CEOs and business leaders in 20 different cities in China. And uh, in China, uh, you can get a divorce just like snapping your fingers. Mm. And before, when they just had the one-child family, there was a lot of divorces because of that first child was a girl she had no responsibility to care for you in your old age. And so that ended up leading a lot of divorces. So Jackie had been made enough trips with me that they re- realized that we'd been married a long time. And one of these events, they asked, well, when we go to the question and answer session, would Mrs. Schultz come up on the podium with you and 
and tell us how you have had such a long marriage. That was always uh, amazing to the to the Chinese. Mm-hmm. That they were really impressed. But the thing that we would emphasize with them is that, first of all, there are no secrets. Uh, secondly, you have to have a lot of patience with one another. And third, most importantly, if you have a disagreement, settle it before you go to sleep. Because if you don't, Tomorrow morning is going to be bigger and harder to manage. Let not the sun go down on your anger. Right? That's right. Yeah, that's great advice. That's the advice of uh, Dick Schultz. He's our guest today. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We're talking about his extraordinary career that has spanned almost a century, in a remarkable century, going back to Iowa and through uh, University of Iowa as a basketball coach, uh, uh athletic director at Cornell University, University of Virginia. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And then also, of course, the big jump to the NCAA, the Olympics, and then your work with the CEO Forum. Uh, When we come back, I would like to touch on some of those things, if that's okay, and uh, ask you more about that, because I think few people may realize how much you've influenced uh, the sports they're watching and the games they've enjoyed over the years. Uh, and certainly both the NCAA and the Olympics have just exploded uh, in the time that you uh, left. And that was thanks, I think, in large part to the work that you did and planting seeds and setting um, good things in motion. So when we come back, we'll be more with Dick Schultz. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life Lessons from Legends. I'm with uh, Dick Schultz today. Um, He's uh, got a chance to worship with Dick at First Presbyterian in Colorado Springs. Have uh, crossed paths with him at Focus on the Family through his work with the CEO Forum. Today we're talking about his extraordinary life. And uh, Dick, um, the first half of the program we've been talking about your childhood and and certainly those early formative years. You you spent a lot of time coaching, a, a significant, almost a quarter century on the sidelines in the dugout. You made the decision to jump into kind of from the field into the front office of sorts. Um, tell me about what it was like and how hard it was to decide to leave the coaching and to go to Cornell University as athletic director. Probably the thing that, that got me out of coaching uh, when it did was the, the ch- recruiting challenges. Uh, when I coached, there wasn't such a thing as a national letter of intent. We had a Big Ten letter, which if I recruited an athlete – uh, no other Big Ten school could recruit him, but any school in the nation could recruit him right up to the day the classes started. And he was, they were a free agent until they attended class one day. And uh, we lost so many top athletes at the last minute uh, to that particular type of situation. And so that part became frustrating. I loved working with the athletes. And I knew if I left coaching, I would uh, really miss them. But uh, I just uh, was getting a little bit of a jaundice eye when it came to coaching. Uh, there weren't shoe contracts then or anything like that, you know. So you you put in a lot of work for what you had. And then the opportunity came up uh, to uh, interview for the athletic directorship at Cornell uh, one of the vice presidents at Iowa was uh, a graduate of Cornell, and and uh, he put my name in, and the next thing I know, I've got a call, and 
business with the people and eventually ended up taking the job. And uh, Cornell was a great starting point for me. It's a wonderful university. Had, at that time, one of the largest athlete programs in the country, as many Ivy League teams had. And uh, there we had 60-some sports for men and women. You know, sports like uh, rodeo, uh, uh, cricket, uh, hmm. racquetball. All of those were varsity sports. And uh, the big challenge at Cornell was that the athletic department was bankrupt and didn't know it. <laughs> so I had a big job of uh, raising money and putting that program together and kind of took a, a page out of the academic side by endowing coaching positions like the football coach and the track coach and the basketball coach and so forth. But it was a great experience for me. And uh, I have a lot of fond memories at Cornell. Did that come naturally to you to make that shift? I mean, there are people listening who have, they make big career shifts. Uh, you know, that's a big turn for you. I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have a problem with the basic shift because uh, I was still working with coaches and with, with athletes, and that was a primary thing. But there's a lot of political things you have to learn when you become an athletic director. You have to work with the college administration, and you have to have good relationships with the faculty. And so uh, while you have good relationships with the faculty as a coach, uh, you're not that close to the the top administration. So there, those were the type of adjustments. And uh, I'm not going to say I didn't make mistakes, but uh, I've always told people that work for me, uh, there's not a problem in making a mistake as, you don't, as long as you don't make it over and over again because you probably learn more from the mistake mm. than you will from something else. This is this, You've described some of the responsibilities, but it may, it may be self-evident. But what does the average athletic director do? Well, you, you were a sports administrator. You hired and fired coaches. You uh, raised scholarship money, and you you had to be a big fundraiser. And then you had to do a lot of public relations work. The the alumni, even at Ivy League schools, have a major interest in the sports program. And uh, in the Ivy League schools, they all have a focus on their reunions. That's a, that's a great fundraising tool for them and keeps people close to them. And I probably had to speak at every reunion class that came in. But uh, that was not a problem. That was just kind of part of the work. Yeah. You and I have a mutual friend in Jim Dobson uh, from Focus on the Family. He used to talk, he kind of coined, I don't know if he coined the term, but he talked about friend raising versus fundraising. Yeah. You've done a lot of fundraising and a lot of friend raising in your day. Um, what does it take to, to raise a lot of money? Well, I think to raise major capital, you have to develop good personal relationships with either the company or the individual. And that takes time. And that's where patience comes in. You know, you, you don't meet with somebody and ask them for $3 million right off the bat. You develop a relationship with them. You find out what their interests are and work on those interests. And then when you feel like you you've got a really good, close personal relationship with them, then you bring them a proposal for a major gift. Mm. And the same is true with with companies. You know, uh, 
we had to raise super amounts of money with the Olympics. And uh, when I was meeting with the CEO and selling them a, let's say, uh, 150 to 200 million sponsorship, one of the things I had to do was convince them not to take that sponsorship unless they were going to spend almost an equal amount of money promoting their their sponsorship with the USOC. Otherwise, I said, if you don't do that, after the Olympics are over, you're going to say, well, we we didn't get that much out of that, and you're not going to renew it. So that was part of the selling point. But the same thing, you had to cultivate the top people. You had to be able to show them the value of their investment and with the Olympics, we could usually show them that they can move their bottom line three or four percent with an Olympic sponsorship, which for the Fortune 500 company is huge. Mm. You developed a reputation over the years for being just this principled negotiator who, um, you know, you were very candid. Uh, you actually convinced uh, the NCAA to take, if I recall, uh fewer uh, alcohol dollars for advertisements you were you felt very strongly talk, talk about your conviction there well i i always when i was coaching i thought it was really kind of silly to have a sporting event with college kids and then advertise alcohol so i took the position when in negotiating those contracts with the approval of the nca that we would not uh, – the only way we would allow a beer company to be a sponsor, they had to do ads that were responsible ads, responsible drinking ads. And it took a couple of years before we could convince them to do that. And then finally they they all realized that and uh, went uh, moved forward with ads that we approved that were – making it clear to young people that drinking is not a habit you want to develop. Yeah, and I, I think from my recollection, you, I don't know if you're the, the, the guy that necessarily started that, but that has become a trend when you see oh, yes. these yeah. vice kind of advertisements. They almost always contain, not always, but primarily, they, they usually contained an element of responsibility. Yeah. And I think we can thank you for that. Well, it... Uh you know, it was a group decision, and it was not an easy decision to make. And uh, we did the same thing when we started the NCA Foundation. Uh, we didn't accept gifts from uh, brewing companies. And the foundation funds were used to provide scholarships for athletes that had completed their eligibility but had not completed their degree as yet. So yeah. we wanted to keep that as pure as we could as well. I'm talking with Dick Schultz. He's the former head of the NCAA through a remarkable time of growth and then also with the United States Olympic Committee between 1995 and 2000, 2001 or so. Um, Dick, when you took over at the NCAA, you were following a founder of sorts, um, a gentleman by the name of Walter Byers. How difficult was that to take over for a guy (laughs) who had kind of paved the way? Well, it's an interesting challenge. Walter was an interesting person. You know, he was the sports information director at the Big Ten when they decided to start the NCAA. And when they started the NCAA, the NCAA staff was Walter Byers and his secretary. 
And uh, he is responsible for basically the, the growth of the NCA. He was a great manager, uh, but never left the office and uh, was a little introverted, but a great manager. Uh, so I got along well with Walter, and the transition was a smooth one. Uh, I came in, and he just said, for 30 days, go ahead and visit as many people as you can and get your feet in the ground, and then in 30 days, I'm out of here. <laughs> so he was apparently ready to retire, and uh, the Challenges that uh, I received from the uh, steering committee of the NCAA was open up the NCAA and make it more user-friendly. So I started visiting campuses, and that was something new, and it was a shock to the media. I mean, and so whenever I would go to a campus that first couple of years, there'd be huge amount of reporters and they'd have to have a press conference and ask all the silly questions, you know, <laughs> but it was something that was unusual for them to be able to directly talk to the head of the NCAA. Yeah. So that was, that was interesting and it was challenging, but it was really opened the organization up. And, uh, I worked really hard at convincing the people that we had to include athletes in our decision-making process because we were making all these rules that impacted them and and not getting any input. So it started out slowly and built up, and now it's a, an important part of the NCA business. Yeah, I'm curious. You obviously are alum of uh, one school, but you've been to a lot of campuses around America. Do you have a favorite one outside of your personal alum uh well, you know, I have some uh, some schools that uh, I really enjoyed Virginia. It's a great university, and Duke is a great school. South uh, North Carolina is uh, uh, a strong and uh, dynamic public university, but there's so many. It's it's hard to to say I like this one more than that one. Obviously, the ones that I was at. I feel closer to because of the experiences that I had that I spent there and the part that they they had in developing whatever skills and talents I had. But it was uh, really interesting to me to be able to uh, visit so many schools. And I would uh, I would be at a basically a university for the most part on every weekend. Wow. And I would always ask to meet not just with coaches and the athletic director and athletes, but I wanted to meet with their board of trustees because they had to have, they had to understand the importance of playing by the rules and doing this. And one of the challenges we had is that we had to strengthen the enforcement process and, and stabilize that. And, uh, it was also, uh, title nine still had a lot of challenges when I went to the NCAA, with a lot of the schools, and there were some threats from some of the schools. Well, we're going to pull out of the NCAA. And I said, that's fine, but you're not going to get any basketball revenue either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I had a pretty good whip with most of them, but uh, it eventually worked out. And then we uh, established the first drug testing program at the NCAA 
And that evolved over time and uh, is now a pretty solid program. So it was an interesting time and a challenging time and uh, one with a lot of new stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, our alma maters mean a lot to us, and uh, it has it is a major part of American life. I mean, I'm thinking of even this weekend, uh, you know, there's dozens, hundreds of games going on that people are going to be tuning into and watching and spending a lot of money, spending a lot of time, and you kind of laid the groundwork for that explosion of the NCAA. Uh, Dick, when you left um, the NCAA, kind of retired, and then were approached to take on the job of the USOC, which is the United States Olympic Committee. If I remember, you said that you turned it down numerous times before you actually agreed yeah, to I take did. the job. Yeah, I did. You know, I, I had uh, been a member of their board representing the school and college community, so I knew where all the spots, the trouble spots all the were, were and I knew already. how, yeah. how uh, politically motivated so much of it was, and I had just got out of a demanding job, and I started my own little consulting business, shared an office with Tom Watson, the golfer, and and I just took uh, enough work that I could do myself. I didn't want to add staff people, and that was going along pretty well, and I had just done that for about a year when the Olympics came, and uh, Harvey Schiller, who was the uh, executive director uh, left to go to work for Turner, so that opened it up. And uh, but finally, I said, "Okay, five years," uh, because there were some major challenges the year before uh, the Atlanta Olympics, and uh, I stayed an extra year because of another challenge at Salt Lake when we had to uh, remove the chairman and the CEO and hire Mitt Romney and bring him in, and he did a fabulous job with Salt Lake. And so that ended up being, a, I think, one of the finest Winter Olympics ever. And Salt Lake is a wonderful site for it because you have a large city down here where the climate is very, very mild, and then you had four-lane divided highways to every Olympic event up in the mountains. When you have the Olympics in Europe, you're on most countries, you're on two-lane roads, and it's hard to get up and hard to get back down. But Salt Lake is just ideal, and I'm pleased that I think they're going to bid for it again. Yeah, <clears throat> I know you weren't involved with it at this time, but I'm still mad about Denver blowing the Olympics in 1976, right? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, Atlanta, many of us remember that Olympics for the bombing. Yeah. Uh, that must have been a kind of a harrowing a tragic, sad knife for you. What's your memory of that? Well, it was, and it it came back, and it was a tragic night. But you know, one of the things you're always concerned about are the athletes, and are the any athletes involved, any athletes injured? And uh, we had a company that was a sponsor, and they wanted to give something to every athlete. So we discussed that, and so we said, okay, give them a pager. You know, cell phones didn't amount to much then. So that their family can get in touch with them if they want to, and so on and so forth. So when that bombing took place about 1 o'clock or 1.30, I had just got back from uh, one of the venues, it just taking my shoes off, and I get a phone call, mm. 
And uh, immediately we sent a message out on all the pagers. And with 15 minutes, we knew where everybody was. Wow. Uh, That's good plan. Everybody was in the Olympic Village except the swimmers. But they had finished their events that night. And so there were a couple of swimmers in there. But within the hour, we had everybody picked up and back in the in the dorm. And, of course, one of the tragic things, they, they blamed the wrong guy and, and made life miserable for him. But nobody knew about it. Uh, we had a lot of meetings the next day or two. There's always the challenge, okay, do you go on or do you cancel? And we made the decision that we're going to go forward with them. Yeah. And Atlanta was really a, an outstanding Olympic, the largest Olympics ever uh, from the standpoint of the number of athletes. And Sydney was the next one up, and they said, we can't handle that many. And so after Atlanta, they put limitations on the number and had to reduce the number of athletes in a lot of sports that yeah. could attend. We're talking with Dick Schultz, uh, who headed up that Olympics in 1996 and 2000 for the United States. Um, I'm Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Dick, That's a, a, what's remarkable is that to have that type of a incident, and yet that those Olympics are considered to be wildly successful in 1996 in Atlanta, yes. despite the fact that there was that bombing. And, and a lot of it, I think, uh, your leadership – the team you assembled around you, the fact that you had the foresight to put those, you know, pagers on the athletes. I mean, that's perhaps God working out ahead of you. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, let me ask you, this is not a political question, and I don't, I'm not asking it in a political context, but you mentioned now Senator Mitt Romney, uh, who ran for president uh, in 2012, was defeated by uh, the incumbent Barack Obama at the time. You knew him long before he was governor, uh, senator, uh, or governor of Utah, and before he ran for president. What was he like as a as a man? I mean, many of us admired him then for the way he led. You knew him personally. Yeah, he he communicated well uh, with his board and with people. He was had excellent management skills, and I think he would have made a great president, actually. And uh, unfortunately. Uh, the Mitt Romney you saw in most of the political situations, other than one uh, uh, debate with Obama, was somebody his handlers were over-controlling. If they would have just let Mitt be Mitt, it would have been interesting to see how that election turned out. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, he did a, a great job of uh, pulling that back together quickly and— uh, we helped raise a lot of money for him, and so it was just a great Olympics. Given all the people that you've crossed paths, paths with in your life, presidents, politicians, business executives, how do you stay in touch with all of them now? Are you a letter writer? Are you an email guy, a text guy, <laughs> phone calls? How do you do it? Well, one thing, I've outlived a lot of them. <laughs> uh, Gerald Ford was, uh, I got to know him very, very well, and uh, uh, George Bush Sr. Uh, had a great relationship with him and some really interesting stories there. Uh, John Wooden and uh, a lot of those people. It, it's hard to, to stay in touch if you're not active in the business, but I think you stay in touch with the ones that 
uh, were closest to you when you were wrapping up your your affair. Like I stay in touch with Mac and McQuiston and and with uh, some of the fellows that I had on my coaching staff. And believe it or not, I still get phone calls from some of my high school athletes. Wow. And uh, that has to be very satisfying. So it's it's just been a good experience. You know, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, you've done a lot of different things. Would you do it all over again? I said, yeah, I think I would. I just hope I wouldn't make the same mistakes again (laughs) I made the first time around. And there were a lot of mistakes. Yeah, but of course, a lot of those mistakes led to success later on and and just the way life works. Um, You mentioned Mac McQuiston. Mac was the head of the CEO Forum, which was a um, a ministry that came out of Focus on the Family. You spent a significant amount of time pouring into CEOs and leaders of Fortune 100 companies uh, all around the world. Um, What are the common denominators that you saw in those leaders uh, I mean, both domestic and international. Well, it it, it was quite different uh, in in some ways, uh, but most of the CEOs were very competent, uh, very capable managers. They all had their own style of of doing things. Uh, some of them uh, had a strong faith. Uh, some of them uh, had a faith that need to mature somewhat. Um, Dick, I think we'll have to leave it there uh, for the sake of time. I wish we could keep talking, but uh, you you were recently speaking to a big crowd, and I have your quote here. You said you were admonishing the crowd. You said it's time to get into the great race of life. We're running for our lives. That is a good word, and I, I think you brought that to our conversation today. I'm hopeful. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Paul Batura. I've been talking with Dick Schultz, former uh, head of the Olympic Committee, former head of the NCAA, and uh, you've been listening to What a Life Lessons from Legends. And I uh, thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.